0: Hey, welcome to Story Kinetics. I'm Adam Skelter, and today we are with Jay Mariteo. How you doing, man? I'm doing really, really good. Happy to be here. Yeah, why are you doing so good?
1: Uh, <laughs> um, I've just been busy. You know, work, working on a lot of little projects, getting myself together, getting yeah. in shape again since I've been super lazy over quarantine. But so, getting in doing?
0: shape, are you like uh, like tracking weights or like building muscle or what? What are you doing? Um, j- just
1: I do Muay Thai and I'm doing that a few times a week now. And I have just noticed that my strength has been up. My stamina has been up. I haven't really been tracking my weight too much. Although I do think I've lost a few pounds, but it's Mm. more about just like feeling healthy and and feeling like I'm making progress.
0: Yeah. So you're feeling like more endurance and stuff. 100%. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Have you changed your diet or anything? Or are you just, just mainly just exercise? I'm being
1: more conscious of my diet, but I haven't made any major changes. I'm, I'm trying to, like, fit in more protein and and have a more diverse diet than I have been having over the last few months, but no major changes. So, like, more protein, like, just more meats or just getting, like, tons of beans and... Um, uh, <laughs> I don't eat a lot of meat, actually. I, I eat a lot of fish, I'm trying to get, okay. like, uh, smoothies on, like, my bigger days of working out and trying to have, like, more plant protein. Overall, too, and trying to balance it out, too, because not all plant protein is complete proteins from my recent researches.
0: Are you like a pescatarian almost or?
1: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I grew up Catholic, but I'm pescatarian now. Borderline pescatarian. That's cool. Did you go through the uh, pescatarian catechism? Of course. Yeah, yeah. I had my first communion, which was just a salmon wafer.
0: (laughs) A little bit of wine. (laughs) <laughs> uh, a nice. wine. Uh, how was writing how was your writing this week uh my writing if
1: i'm going to be completely honest has taken a little bit of a backseat to other things that have been going on in my life yeah. uh, but but that's definitely something I, i'm fully going to be going into next week and, and trying to get uh going on some of those projects that i've been mentioning to you and on the podcast the last few sessions yeah, so
0: why, why next week? What's what's changing for next week?
1: Uh, I've just had a really busy schedule this week and haven't been finding the time. So I, I feel like on certain weeks I'll notice myself not doing things that I normally do. And so the following week is usually I'll, I'll prioritize those more. So writing ah, gotcha. definitely is an example of
0: that. Yeah, I know Like with, with myself, um, I'm in a different phase. Like when I was uh, writing intervention, I I made a goal that I wanted to try and write about sixty thousand words in thirty days, and I ended up doing it in about twenty eight days. So just shy of that, I finished the first draft in twenty eight days. But that said, like I had it thoroughly mapped out. I I was also adapting it from a screenplay, so literally I was I was taking whole scenes and just adapting it literally. So um, and then just kind of fleshing it out a little bit more. Um, And, but since I finished it, like, you know, I, I, I always take a break as soon as I finish a novel and then just put it away so I can't read it. And then I'll open it up, like take about three weeks, four weeks, depending on what I got going on. And then, um, and just give it like a quick read, just sit down and read it all in one reading as much as I can. And if it, you know, that's usually when I see the real bruises and, um, and also when I see the magic, like it's kind of nice, like this. This last intervention, it's one of the smoothest experiences I've had so far with with writing a novel. Where it just, it just kind of, it, it was like the the moment where like the the time had come. Like it wasn't like dr- slow dripping like honey. It was just pouring onto the page. Um, so when I uh, when I was just sitting down writing, it was just like a flurry. Every single day, I was probably writing six to eight hours a day. And barely stopping, like it was. It was like such a great flow, and I I love that because I'm, I'm starting to ramp up and do all the prep work for my next novel, and um, and I hope it's a similar situation. Like I'm, I'm, you know, profit margin was such a long novel. Uh, It was, you know, such a thick, like 180,000 words, Uh, and even that I wrote pretty quickly. But this uh, but I'm kind of focusing on doing like kind of shorter, more concise novels. And part of that is because I want to, you know, a lot of these novels I want to adapt to to features and feature uh, like screenplays. So it's kind of like they're formatted in, in a, a very cinematic style and then it'll be um, easily adapted. And plus, I'll, for a lot of them, I will have the screenplay and the novel and the pilot to go along with it. Um, is that so the this case one for intervention you know, at all? Yes, intervention's a feature. Like, I wrote it first as a feature. Um, and the cool thing is, is it, it lends itself perfectly. Like, the voice, the point of view, um, totally works for a contained feature that opens a door or leaves a door open for a franchise, if, mm-hmm. if we want to go that direction. Uh, it's a, you know, because it's like a psychological sci fi thriller. Um, But a very complex, interesting world with lots of interesting characters. So I I think it really lends itself to that kind of adaptation. I just have so many stories, so many worlds that I want to write that it's like right now, I'm just trying to focus on kind of building uh, as much of my original IP, getting it out there so it's published. So it's like I have kind of authoritative voice on it. Um, And then when we adapt it, you know, people can always go back to the source material, which I'm going to be publishing. Uh, And then when we adapt it to film and TV. Uh, then it'll, that'll have it. It'll take on a different life. You know, I'm a big believer that you need to adapt literature to the medium, you know, like no country for old men was originally written by Cormac McCarthy. It's a great read. It's a fantastic novel and the Coen brothers, um, did a really original adaptation that broke away from the novel, but in all the right ways in all the smart ways, they found the cinematic equivalent to, uh, to a literary device. And that's that's the genius. Um, like, were you a fan of uh, Watchmen, the the graphic novel and the movie? Um, not quite the movie, uh, oh. if to be honest. And I've never actually read the graphic novel. Oh, okay. So the graphic novel, it, it's fantastic. It's it, it takes a really morally, it, it's a moral mosaic of complex characters that kind of ask the question of you know what what do you do with these superpowers what do you do with kind of this vigilante mask, uh, ethic, uh, like in a dark city in a crime ridden city. Um, but, uh, it, it's a, it's a great classic graphic novel and it takes the superhero trope to a different level that, uh, hadn't, we hadn't really seen much of it, it kind of takes the premise of superheroes and superpowers seriously in an interesting way. But, but when they adapted it, uh the screenwriters and Zack Snyder talked about he he just basically said, let's just take the dialogue and just adapt it straight to the film. And in a way it's like, you know, he 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 was taking the consideration of the the authority of the fans that are like, you know, this is, you know Alan Moore is notorious for hating every adaptation of his work. And he always wants his name taken off every film. Um and so <laughs> uh so i think snyder was attempting to to be like you know we're going to adapt this but we're gonna we're gonna honor the source material the problem is is that that's not real adaptation like they they're literally taking dialogue that works really well on the page it works really well at the way you frame it in a in a graphic novel context but as soon as you adapt it cinematically it's a different form altogether and with actors especially with sophisticated actors with a cast that they had they, they could have developed a lot more layered subtext and, and pushed the like, you know, in a graphic novel, a lot of the subtext is it's right on the page. It's it's there's they're saying exactly what they're feeling. And in film, you have all the nuance of motion and kinetics and, and acting. So the uh, so the actors can bring a lot of like dimension to it. And unfortunately, I by by keeping the original dialogue, the way it was in the graphic novel, I think they are actually kind of shortchanging their Hmm. the their adaptation. It was almost too much of a literal adaptation of the graphic novel. That said, I think the ending in the movie is better than the graphic novel. Well, I don't want to spoil the whole movie, but the way they use Dr. Manhattan in the film is different than the graphic novel. And it's I thought it was a really clever adaptation. Um, I just wish that the the kind of the dialogue and the way they structure the scenes was a bit more of a sophisticated adaptation rather than just like a straight, you know, one-to-one uh, adaptation that they did from the graphic novel. But um,
1: yeah, I feel like a lot of films uh, can sometimes struggle with that because they're trying to stay so true to the source material and yeah. not taking into account how different cinema is because it brings in so many different elements. And you're also constricted to a lot shorter of a, Time
0: frame. Yeah. Uh let's jump into Story Bites, shall we? Let's do it. Story bites. So you want to get Story bites? This week's Story Bites, we're gonna be going over Mammoth's Creed. So David mamet is a playwright, um, and a screenwriter and director as well. Uh he wrote one of my favorite plays and movies called Glengarry Glen Ross. It was um It's a really tense, very contained story, uh, but it's, it's so well-written, so charismatic, amazing cast as well. I strongly recommend checking out the movie. So he was, he was, uh, one of the co-creators for the unit, the TV show, and they were, they were kind of getting, you know, it was a procedural cop show and they were kind of getting into a bit of a rut. The, the, the ratings were falling and it wasn't getting quite the critical acclaim that it had before. So, um, Mamet wrote a letter, an open letter to the, the writing team. Um, and in it, he talked about these three questions that you need to ask, uh, when you're reviewing a scene, every single scene, when you're writing a script, uh, he said, apply these questions to the scene and you'll know if the scene is dramatic. Um, specifically the questions are who wants, what, what happens if they don't get it and why now the answer to these questions are a litmus paper. Apply them and their answer will tell you if the scene is dramatic or not. Now, this obviously kind of resonates quite a bit with, the, um, the, the, with Sorkin's altar, because both of them are saying, what, what, what does the character want and what is stopping them? Now, Sorkin's, uh, Sorkin's altar mainly asks the question of like, what is getting in their way? But, but Mamet says, I want to focus on the stakes, too. So the stakes have to be present, which is why he asked the question, what happens if they don't get it? And why now? If you don't know the answer to that question in each scene, you usually it usually means that the scene doesn't quite have the dramatic energy that it could. Um, and not every scene needs to be you know, a dramatic like, life-turning thing, but every single scene does need to be a character confronting an obstacle. If you just have somebody walking in saying, I really need um I, I need this file from f- you know the drawer number four and then the person says thank you for telling me and then they pull out the file from drawer number four you don't have a scene and the reason you don't have a scene is is at the core of this is this is true with sorkin's altar this is true with mammoth's creed is that the core of this is stories story is about drama and drama is about the emotional changes you're experiencing from scene to scene so um so the idea is that you you know you in the unit apparently at the time they were having a lot of issues with just kind of ask and answer. They would, they would have, they would have police officers that just needed to get an answer. They, so they would go interrogate somebody and then the, you know, be the back and forth. Will they, won't they, blah, blah, blah. And ask and answer doesn't have a lot of obstacles. It doesn't have a lot of uh, drama. So, um, by applying mammoth's creed who wants, what, what happens if they don't get it and why now introduces stakes and those stakes tell us, they inform how emotionally connected we are and what the emotional, um, journey that the character is going through. And every single scene needs to have some kind of emotional turn. That's, that's the definition of drama. If there's no emotional turn, and that doesn't mean you want characters who are melodramatic. The idea is you have to come up with a conflict that forces the character to experience some sort of uh, dramatic emotional change. Um, so Every and when I'm when I'm writing, especially when I'm rewriting, every single scene I will go through and ask myself: Does this scene? Do I know what this character wants? Do I know what the other characters want that are impeding them? Um, and then what happens if they don't get it? So that's that's where the stakes are really implicit. So what happens is we have a lot of scenes where people are um, not um, the, the, the writers aren't clear on exactly what the stakes are and so the scenes kind of come off as muddy and often come off as expositional so this is a great way to test every single scene to see if it has drama to see if it has an emotional turn if we can identify the stakes and identify and the stakes are always connected to the objectives of the character i think
1: it's been natural for me to try to look at motivation and intention answer kind of the the first two questions that mamet asked there but bringing in the why now and being as specific in, in all three of those questions as he is, is definitely something I want to try using.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. With the movie we're going to review today um, for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, there is this opening scene. As soon as Patrick shows up at the door or at the window on his car door and knocks on it, uh, uh, from that scene all the way until he finds out that, he, that the memory's been re- erased, there's this whole ambiguous moment where the audience isn't clued in to what's at stake. Like the audience doesn't know what's going on. Exactly. He doesn't know why Mark Ruffalo is driving in a van up to his apartment and why he's like stalking him and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's not till slowly that it, the, it reveals the stuff. But what's interesting is the writer clearly knew because when you go back and rewatch it, all of the objectives are very clear, very specific. Right. And it's 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 one of the things that, like, even though the audience, you're not, you know, they were withholding from the audience a little bit, causing them to do a little bit of math and figure out, like, what's going on here. But the writer, like uh, Charlie Kaufman, clearly knew every single scene, what the characters wanted. So this was this was a great way to kind of really evaluate other great written uh, well-written scripts. Uh, Let's jump into the asshole, hole, shall we? Let's do it. okay today the the ask hole is uh do i need to outline this is a big there's a big one especially for me jay do you need to outline as a writer um short answer is no you
1: don't need to outline as a writer but i do think there is a lot of benefits to outlining and for me personally I, I pretty much always outline unless i'm doing like a specific exercise or like a really short work then I'm, I'm always outlining and I usually think about stories in terms of outlining first and foremost like I think about the really broad strokes So it's helpful for me to pen those down and start working yeah. through some of the questions that I need to ask myself As I'm going through and then I get more and more specific until I'm finally writing everything out, but I, I do
0: think it's different for everybody uh, what do you think, though? It, have you have you ever written a long-form, like a screenplay or a novel without outlining?
1: No. <laughs> no.
0: Really? Never. Interesting. Yeah, my first, I would say my first three screenplays I wrote, zero outlining. I just oh, sat wow. down and, you know, I'd read a ton of uh, screenplays by then. I mean, my very first ones was when I was a teenager, they're total shit, but um but like the ones that I did like an actual like concerted effort that I actually got some you know uh director became interested and we started pitching it and i I had some story instincts, but you could see a lot of the limitations from just the way I structured the story, mainly because I was you know this is the part of the problem is as much as people shit on structure or outlining, when I went about. Uh, Writing a script without outlining. That's when it became the most contrived. That's when it I found myself Unconsciously gravitating Towards the patterns that were already familiar like the patterns we see in other movies Um, But when I outline I become aware of those patterns and start to break away from them And I think that's honestly the advantage is that like outlining is kind of a way of pre-writing It's it's a developmental sense, but also you and I've seen this a lot. We we can't talk about outlining or not outlining without talking about R. R. Martin and Stephen King. So uh, R. R. Martin has this idea. Um, he talks about um, architects and gardeners, and how basically gardeners are uh, are uh, people who plant the seeds and just see how they grow which you know tells me that Martin doesn't do a lot of gardening because when you really when you're into gardening you're actually planning out the rows and you know how they're going to grow and you plan f- for like the tomato stems and all that stuff um, but <laughs> the metaphor works in, on the surface which is you know let the metaphors or let the story grow and see where it goes versus an architect who looks at the story and plans everything out in advance, kind of like a schematic, and then uh, hand, and looks at that writing as, as or that outline as uh, scaffolding that you build upon. Um, and then, of course, Stephen King is notorious for being a, uh, a a gardener or specifically a pantser, where he writes by the seat of his pants. Now, um, and you can see the strengths of that and the weaknesses of that in Stephen King's writing. Like, as much as I love Stephen King, as especially, mostly, I love 75% of everything Stephen King writes. <laughs> like, the the first 75% of his novels are so fantastic. They're so... It's great character. He really puts you in the skin, puts you in the moment. And, but his payoffs always feel like they fall flat. Um, and his few exceptions are his uh, novellas or his short stories. Because the short stories, he, he has enough of a he, he looks forward enough to say, I know where this is going. I'm going to write toward that. Like Shawshank Redemption, arguably one of his greatest stories. Um, and you know, that he was always driving. He was always building toward that great escape at the end. And that's why it always had a kind of momentum that was building like the setups and the past worked really well. You look at it or the stand, uh, or Tommy knockers great novels, but the payoffs were not nearly what i feel like they could have been if he had taken the time to to structure it to outline it, prepare it and pre-write it a little bit um you know that said i i love him i love i love stephen king um but you know he's if you read his scripts as opposed to his novels you can see like he's it's kind of like he's, he's such a good writer he's such a fascinating literary voice that when you um when you strip away a lot of the literary devices he can use and, and read his screenplays, you see the limitations a little bit more, obviously he tends, you know, he's writing a little bit more on the surface. He doesn't have the inner monologue. So you're not, you're not getting a lot of the, the layers that you otherwise would. Um, but that said, you know, that it's a big reason why I'm a big advocate for outlining. I always outline now the, you know, the, my first few screenplays, my first few novels I wrote without outlining and they <laughs> suffered for it. But it was, it, was the pro- it was the learning progress I needed to go through. Um, and then of course there's like people like Bob Sines, who's a very, he's a friend of mine, screenwriter, uh, fantastic screenwriter. He did extracurricular activity and he never outlines. He's also, you know, he's, he's got a lot of experience in the industry. He's mature, but uh, he, he has those story instincts um, and then uh, builds from the story instinct. So he doesn't, for him, he doesn't outline but internally, he knows he's got that compass. He's got that internal compass. Sorry. Let me take care of Scott real quick. Uh, let me sum that up, though. So, so in short, uh, too late for that. But basically what we're saying is no one is required to outline. You don't have to outline, but um, you'll benefit a lot. If you're not outlining, you need to write a lot and you need to fail a lot. If you are outlining, it's basically a different kind of draft. It's it's a way of blue-skying without committing. Uh, when I was writing my early novels, I would write hundreds of pages that were completely wrong turns. And then I would become so committed, I'm like, I did so much work on them. <laughs> and I, it was so hard that I didn't want to let them go. So they became darlings. And then those darlings were sinking the ship. And the, it just felt like they weren't <laughs> really moving anywhere. That's a big reason why, like foreshadowing and setups and payoffs is a huge sacred obligation of every writer so outlining, strongly recommend it but there are no rules Alright, let's jump into Vivis You want a vivisection Okay Jay, what is, what's the movie we're reviewing for the vivisection today?
1: The movie that we're doing this week is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind Cool um, Do you want me to just That's go great. into the full
0: Yeah, why don't you give us a recap?
1: Yeah, so Eternal Sunshine was released in 2004 uh, by director Michelle Gondry. It was written by Charlie Kaufman, and it has story credits for Charlie Kaufman, Michelle Gondry, and Pierre Bismuth. It's starring Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet, and the budget is estimated about $20 million. Uh, So Eternal Sunshine is about a young couple that goes through a really bad breakup, to say the least, and they individually decide to erase their memories of each other through, like, a new state-of-the-art procedure. Mm-hmm. And while this is happening, I think it's worth mentioning that Frodo is stealing Kate Winslet's underwear and being a total creep. And, and by Frodo, you mean Elijah Wood? Of course. Yeah, Elijah Wood. <laughs> and while, while that's happening, there's also, like, another love triangle that's unfolding, which is a big part of the story as well. And we'll get into that um when eternal sunshine opened its opening weekend it made about eight million and all time it's sitting at 74 million it's actually charlie kaufman's best performing film at the box office even to Mm -hmm. today and this is a movie that is really highly regarded um you could ask a hundred film students what their favorite movie is and I'm, i'm betting at least half of them will have this in their top five uh Is that true with you, too? No, no, not true with me. Actually, I don't hate this movie by any means, but it's definitely not one of my favorites. And I'm sure we'll we'll get to talking and maybe I'll explain a little better why that is. But right now on IMDb, Eternal Sunshine holds 8.3 and on Rotten Tomatoes is at 93%. When it was released, it was received very well. And uh, Roger Ebert gave it a three and a half stars and later revised it to four stars out of four. Wow. And at the 2005 Oscars, it won for best writing original screenplay uh, from Charlie Kaufman, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kate Winslet was also nominated for best actress.
0: Nice. Now with the Rotten Tomatoes, was that uh, audience and critics or just just uh, critics?
1: Um that is the tomato meter which i believe is just critics its audience score is at 94% so may- maybe that's why i said 93 it's like oh, okay. the the, the average. average
0: yeah i always love seeing when when the critics and the audience are really different cuz i i yeah i'm curious about that like hail caesar has a dramatically different i think it was like something like 89% critics and like 43% audience oh wow which is disappointing. <laughs> I didn't realize. Movies, but, yeah,
1: it's a really good movie.
0: Yeah, cool. Let's uh, let's dive into the structure. Let's deconstruct this motherfucker. Mm, story structure. Uh, so when we're when we're deconstructing, we always go to the uh, story kinetics uh, uh, template, story template. It's the four X template, and basically we're we're referring to the template as a prototype, as a reference. Uh, I never say that, that a movie or, or a novel or a story needs to um, like measure up to the template. It's pretty much just like a compass where you, you start to navigate and deconstruct the, the structure so you can see how the, the bones and the machinery under the hood are working. Um, and of course it's a four-act structure, eight sequences. Uh, one, one of these days we need to do a story bite where we talk about uh, just sequence and the sequence approach and how that relates to acts, and how that relates to plot points. Um, but generally speaking, we're looking at twenty-four plot points, four acts, eight sequences, and it all works out to be about three plot points per sequence uh, that culminate at certain landmarks. And these landmarks are what really defines the progress of the story. Landmarks are a combination of conflicts and emotional events, um, and we're gonna and and it's where the scene uh, or where the movie takes uh, dramatic emotional turns. Um, So we're going to take Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and measure it up to the template. I never say that that a movie or or a novel or story needs to um, like measure up to the template or line it up to the template and see uh, what we can learn from it um, as we deconstruct it. Uh, Before we jump into that, I want to ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind a romance? Uh, I think so, yes. Yeah. Why do you think? You, well, define romance for me. What's a romantic movie? Uh, a romantic movie, in my
1: terms at least, is a movie uh, about love or relationship. And and
0: this movie definitely checks that box. Okay, so like, for example, uh, Antichrist. I should not come here. Get out! Ah! Ah! Nature of Satan's church.
1: um uh, n- not e- not exactly no 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 uh i think that movie is a little bit different because its tone is is so <laughs> i don't even know how to describe it but uh, i mean if someone really argued that it that it's a romance to me i wouldn't necessarily have that much against it because i mean yeah at the end of the day it is about about this couple trying to get through The loss of their child, right? Yeah. So, so it's a little romantic.
0: Where are you? So, any story about a relationship, any film about love, is romantic.
1: Yes, on some level, at least. On some level, okay. I'm I'm not saying it can't be something else as well. I'm not saying that it can't be something more than that. But yeah, I I would argue that, that if it's about love or a relationship that it would qualify as, as a romance. Okay,
0: cool. Well, I want to, um, as we deconstruct it, I want that question to kind of linger in your brain for a little bit to, to kind of evaluate what Michelle Gondry, sorry. Well, Michelle Gondry and Charlie Kaufman are saying about the nature of love, specifically the kind of love that Joel and Clem have. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so let's let's look at the structure. Now, of course, whenever we're looking at the structure, the first thing we want to look at is the dramatic question. Now, we've talked about dramatic question in every episode. It's it's one of the, the tent poles uh, for identifying the landmarks in every movie. And the dramatic question is always phrased is, will the character, will the protagonist achieve X? Okay, so um, and then that ties directly into the climax, which is the answer to the dramatic question. So in the case of uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, what is the dramatic question, Jay?
1: The dramatic question is, will Joel get a second chance at love with his beloved Clementine?
0: Okay, so you got the will, which Mm -hmm. is projecting forward. Joel is the protagonist. Get a second chance at love. I think that's a little bit of a... Broad way of articulating the question, Um, like if you were to pitch the concept of this movie, saying it's about a guy who gets a second chance at love, doesn't really tell us anything. It it only tells us that it's you know about a guy who who's in love with somebody or wants wants another chance at love. But this has a very specific high concept uh, behind the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, like let's talk about high concepts. So so high concepts. Uh, it's, it's something that people talk about a lot when you're pitching, when you're developing something is, you know, a lot of, a lot of studios tend to lean more toward high concept. And the basis of a high concept movie or a high concept story is where the idea is central to the story. Okay. So Orson Scott Card released this book, uh, about character and viewpoint. And in it, he talks about this thing called a mice quotient. Um, actually it might've been in his science fiction and fantasy books. He has two books that are fantastic books, strongly recommend them. Um, I love Ender's game, a lot of other card stuff. I'm not really a fan of, especially his, uh, legal documents, <clears throat> but he has two books that are really great, uh, that are about storytelling. that are about writing. Um, and he talks about this thing called the mice quotient and, and the mice is it's an acronym, which basically is uh milieu idea, character or event. And he says each story is usually about one or two of those things a milieu which is the venue like the the setting the the location where they're going it's all about travel the idea usually like sci-fi tends to be about like you know what if you could erase someone's memory or erase someone out of your memory you know that's and then a character which is where you you know kind of dive into uh just following the character telling your life story you know like uh david copperfield that kind of stuff and then, events is about you know everybody everybody's point of view or character's point of view of this huge cataclysmic or uh, or uh, cultural or societal ex- experience that everybody's sharing. Um, and what tends to what the studios tend to say that they're looking for is high concept, which is you prioritize the idea. Um, for example, um, there was that movie about a, a guy who has a magical remote control um, and he can fast forward or pause or rewind time and everything like that. That's the high concept idea, um, and what I love about Charlie Kaufman is he's really good at taking high concept ideas, um, but exploring them through character, and really emphasizing and prioritizing complex, layered characters um, through the high concept, and that that's what I think a great writer does. We we see lots of high concept stories that are like that's a cool concept, and then you know they'll kind of throw in some gags throw in some set pieces and call it a day put a nice logo get a nice soundtrack on there get some attractive looking people and then you got a movie Um, but the the great writers really take that high concept kind of tap into the internal metaphors what they mean to these characters and explore a layered psychological phenomena beneath the hood of it and that's what I think is true with the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, is they, they he, he took this high concept of a, idea of what if you could erase someone from your memory and use that as wh- who are the kind of people that would choose to do this procedure and what psychological machinations would would drive them to, to uh, take part in this. And how can we use this mechanism to uh, dive into their unconscious? unconscious? Um, and that's that's what I love so much about it. So if you're pitching the high concept version of *Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind*, you're coming from kind of a character approach, which is will he find love again? Mm-hmm. You know that that's what he wants. That's his character, but um, or will he have a second chance at love? But the concept, the idea that the whole story is wrapped around, um, is largely about the procedure, the Lacuna procedure. Mm-hmm. So if I were going to sit in the room and, or if I were in an elevator, well, don't ever pitch in the elevator, just don't ever do it. But, but if you have like just a quick minute to get an impression, to get your idea across your log line with eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, and especially with the dramatic question, you want to have that uh, amnesia procedure as part of the story as part of the pitch. So, um, so the procedure should be a part of the dramatic question. Will Joel, and then, what is what does he want to achieve with the procedure? Um,
1: I mean, he, he initially he wants to rid his mind of Clementine, Good. but as we later find out in the movie, he wants to actually hold on
0: to a memory of her. Good, exactly. So we find out actually pretty quick, right around thirty minutes, that he doesn't want to erase Clementine. He thinks he does at first when he signs up for the procedure then immediately has buyer's remorse and is like, wait, I don't want to do this. So the dramatic question actually becomes, will Joel resist the procedure? Will he overcome the procedure? The procedure is erasing Clementine from his memory. And almost immediately he regrets it. So the rest of the story, all of act two, three, and four are all about him about Joel trying to escape the effects of the procedure and hold on to some memory of Clementine. So I, the dramatic question was probably best identified as will Joel resist the amnesia procedure or the lacuna procedure? And then from there, the, uh, the climax is the answer to the dramatic question. What is the climax? Uh,
1: the climax is they, they do decide to stay together or get back together.
0: Cool, they do make the decision. So in other words, he does overcome the procedure, uh, not mm-hmm. in the way we expect, but in a way that is uh, mostly satisfying. And we're gonna talk about that in the plot holes, <laughs> what, what is a little bit unsatisfying about it, but in a very clever, interesting way. Okay, um, so once, we go, once we've identified the dramatic question, the climax, which is yes, he does end up staying with Clementine, um, we go to the impetus. Now, the impetus is a presentation of the problem. This is the uh, this is the problem that he's going to be uh, addressing the entire time. Um, so what is the impetus? Uh, the impetus
1: in Eternal Sunshine is when Joel discovers that Clementine had her memories erased.
0: Good. Exactly. W- why is that the impetus?
1: Um, that's what kick starts the events of the rest of the movie and, and really ultimately gets
0: Joel to also undergo the procedure. Exactly. See, when I first was deconstructing this, my first impression was that it, the impetus was the moment where, um, where Patrick um, shows up and knocks on the window. Because mm. you're like, okay, that's the moment where everything kind of turns left and everything seems weird and they're like, okay, this isn't just two people falling in love. There's something else going on here. And Patrick is the introduction of that. But uh, after reviewing it and looking at the real actual physical bones, We don't understand what the problem is. We're not beginning to learn what the stakes are until he learns that Clementine has erased him. And then he says, that's it, I want the procedure too. So you're absolutely right. The impetus comes in right around 20 minutes uh, when he learns that he's been erased by Clementine, that Clementine has erased him from her memory. And then he decides he wants to go forward with it as well. Um, So once we get the impetus, Uh, we now have the impetus dramatic question that that becomes the whole spine now we want to follow the emotional arcs so we go uh, to the midpoint and then to the low point and those kind of uh become the the connection the connector points uh or the junction between the dramatic question and the climax uh so what would you say uh the midpoint is for eternal sunshine
1: yeah so the midpoint is i I think they're in Joel's memory but he mm-hmm. is in the woods with Clementine right okay and they decide to, to go back and go further back into to Joel's memories to try to hide okay.
0: there good so the moment where they try to hide Clementine in his memories why is that the midpoint
1: um, as you described before it, it kind of marks uh, like a transition in their strategy.
0: OK, so it's, good, exactly. It, it marks a transition in their strategy. Um, so there's you know, there are lots of scenes where they're kind of taking pretty dramatic emotional turns, but it's really when they change strategy that you mark a new act and you arrive at a certain culmination. So up to this point, act two is where he is running with Clementine and he's just trying to hold on to the memory. So he's literally experiencing all the memories as the machine goes through the procedure and he just tries to hold on to her. And then he tries from one, to run from one memory of her to another memory of her, keep trying to hold on to her. And the procedure is locating it and, and destroying it. So at the midpoint is when you know they're saying, like, let's hide you where I don't belong. Let's mm-hmm. hide you in your childhood memories. And he uh, wraps her in a coded metaphor and buries her uh, in memories of his childhood, even though he never knew her.
1: I, I um, do wanna say one thing uh, when I, yeah. Was watching this movie the most recent time. Something that kind of stood out to me. I think it was only a scene or two before this point in the movie. Um, Joel finally has a positive memory of Clementine. I think they're like sitting on the couch or something like that. Or maybe they're even laying in bed together. But it's really the first positive memory that Joel has of Clementine. Everything up to that point was... Uh, You know the memory of her getting her memory erased and them just arguing all their fights and stuff like that And this is the first time that Joel actually says Oh, I just want to hold on to this one memory And for me at first that that was kind of the midpoint, but maybe that's the start of the midpoint That's when he's fully realizing that he wants to hold on to her And then the, the actual midpoint that we just discussed is when He finds a
0: way to potentially hold on to that memory of her See that? Okay, that's a really good point. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, so we know that as soon as he's in that, it looks like a dentist office, but it's the Lacuna office, and he's standing over the shoulder looking at himself, and he's like, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And, you know, everything's distorted a little bit. And then he overhears Patrick in the background, and he's saying, he, he's like, he's stealing Clementine. Uh, like right off the bat, he starts saying like, wait, I don't want to do this. Hold on, wait, wake me up. I don't want to do this. So as soon as he resists the procedure, we've already crossed the threshold into the second act. We've already posed the dramatic question, will he resist the procedure? Mm -hmm. Um, The fact that he jumps through every single scene and all of his memories of her are the breakup or what led up to the breakup. Um, Plot: Just looking at the plot, it's still the same strategy Um, but you're raising the stakes like him saying, wait a minute, I actually really want this memory. This is a good memory. I don't want to let go of this. The reason why that's not the midpoint is because he's still pursuing, he's still resisting the procedure the same way. Mm -hmm. He's still just following all the memories of her. Um, and because of that, you, you're pretty much following like, this is how Joel would hold on to, or would solve this problem. Just try and hold on to something. It's all like it, it, it's his, it's him trying to uh, solve the problem in the way that he, the only way he can think of. So at the midpoint, that's when it starts to transition. And that's why it's significant that Clem is the one who suggests uh, that they hide her in a place she doesn't belong. Um, I,
1: I think another really good marker for this midpoint is uh, I think this is also when Joel opens his eyes in the real world, right? Yeah. Like he yeah, almost right. is successful at waking himself up, but then yep. they. They put him under again.
0: Yeah, that's a really great point. I didn't think about that. Um, It's kind of like intercut
1: almost with that that scene in his memories. Yeah. If I remember correctly. And the midpoint,
0: exactly. The midpoint is all about disillusionment. It's where you think you're going to get what you want. You think you're going to solve the problem. And then the floor drops out beneath you. And you realize you're further away from your goal than you were before. Mm -hmm. And that's... That's why like him opening his eyes is a perfect example of that disillusionment. It's a a great visual metaphor of it. Um, Cool. So the midpoint, definitely when they decide to change their strategy and and try and hide her in the subconscious of other memories that they can't track her. Okay, so from the midpoint, we want to go to the low point. Uh, What would you say the low point is?
1: Uh, The low point would definitely have to be when Joel's memories are officially erased at the end of the yeah. procedure and then uh, okay yeah. so
0: the procedure is completely done hmm so the procedure is successful is the procedure successful uh mostly mostly it, it seems
1: like Joel has held on to just the tiniest bit of of a memory or or something
0: good so yes I totally agree with you the low point is when the procedure is complete and they believe they've completely erased Clementine from his memory and for all intents and purposes, they have, except one little whisper from his subconscious that says, meet me in Montauk. Mm-hmm. That's that's that kind of lingering, like, it's the one thing that they didn't erase because they didn't connect the two, uh, which was, of course, the place that they originally met in, uh, in the real life. Good. So this kind of gives us an overall map. We can see that, you know, if we just look at the diagram, you know, we start off from the point where he gets, where he finds out about the procedure. And it's just this. Just a slide downward. This is a very melancholical tone. It's largely just about reminiscing about losing someone you deeply love. It's it's really, uh, yeah. You you wanna you wanna have a few drinks while you're watching this. <laughs> um, so from there, uh, we want to identify the hook, and the you know the hook is the last major landmark. Um, well, actually not the last major. There we'll we'll talk about the secondary uh, landmarks. But the primary landmarks, uh, the last one is the hook. And what's the hook in this movie?
1: Uh, It's starting media res. It's Clementine and Joel, their meet cute scene. And uh, just they're like the start of their newfound relationship or what seems to be their newfound relationship.
0: Yeah. So uh, use the term uh, in media res. Explain to us what what that is.
1: Yeah, so that's when... uh, I totally know what that means, by the way. I just...
0: uh, don't that to I
1: don't know exactly like what it means specifically. So maybe you could help out with that. But in movies, it's, it's when a movie starts at a later point, but brings that to the beginning of the movie.
0: Good. Yeah, you're exactly right. So the movie starts out uh, later in the story and it presents it right now. In media is it's Latin for uh, it means in the middle of things or in the midst of things. Um, and, I knew you Actually, would know the latin <laughs> so uh usually it kind of became this trend after pulp fiction a lot of people started using a me- in media res and they almost started abusing it to the point where like <laughs> a lot of critics were saying like you know starting off we're done within media res stop starting your movie or your story or your novel you know 75 of the way through or at the low point um, or the moment of like high crisis because what often happened was people were they didn't have a strong first act so they would resort to in media res to try and say like you know well this you know we're going to get back to this this the the opening scene isn't very interesting so we're going to get back to this is where it's going to go so it becomes like a promise that the movie does take on some sort of interesting tension um but then they go back to the first act and uh, they don't have really interesting character development or they've found an interesting way to develop the characters um, a, a really good example of in media res, I think, is like um, Get Out. where uh, We've got that great scene where guy's walking down the neighborhood and he's being stalked by this car that turns around. So you're not introducing the main character. Um, you know what? I take I that back. That's I not don't in think media that's in media res now. I'm completely wrong. That's not in media res at all.
1: good. We'll uh, cut this that out.
0: That, yeah, because I never <laughs> want to be wrong on the podcast. I'm always right. Yeah, yeah, yeah for I'm sure. wrong all the time. Um, <laughs> what's a good example of in media res? Oh, uh, city what was of God, film? Seymour Hoffman mission impossible.
1: Oh yeah. I know what you're talking about. It's, it's been a while. I don't know which one that was.
0: Yeah. So that one, that one was, uh, I believe that was a JJ Abrams one. It, it starts off at this moment of high crisis. It's a set piece. Um, and, uh, And then the movie starts off like, you know, two months before Mm -hmm. or three weeks before. And you're just like and then the tension always drops right after the in media res. So anyways, the point of in media res is uh, use it if you want to use it. If you can, if it serves the story, if it kind of becomes like a frame story, mission uh, or sorry, um, uh, the profit margin starts with in media res. um, And the whole story is this uh, interrogation scene. We keep going back to this interrogation scene where we're learning a little bit more about Tommy Knox. Um, the, the Prophet margin is my first novel and it has this kind of frame story. So we're starting right at the low point and we're building up to the moment where he gets arrested, um, by the secret service. And we're wondering why he got arrested by the secret service. So it's, it's one of those things where you want to use it, you use it in a smart way. Um, so with the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind starts in media res uh scene that actually takes place later in the movie. It's the only time we're actually cheating the, uh, the time. So the first time I watched Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, I thought it was a movie going backward in time. Um, when the truth is, is uh, it, it's actually a movie going progressively forward in time. It's just we're following the procedure, which is uh, reverse engineering all of its memories or tracking backwards through all of his memories. Mm-hmm. Um, which gives it that kind of reconstruction, and of course you got to reference Memento um, in uh, if you're if you're citing that kind of story structure. Now, Memento came out before this movie, right?
1: It did, yeah. Interesting story with that. Uh, Charlie Kaufman, after Memento was released, was very discouraged to keep writing Eternal Sunshine, and was eventually convinced to come back on board. Really? But, yeah. So I, I think he just saw Memento and and the fact that it had such a similar structure to the turtle sunshine did something to discourage him.
0: See, that's interesting because it's it's a completely different movie. Yeah, very different movies. It's not even the same uh, structure. It's not even the same concession. I mean, it reverse engineers his memories, but uh...
1: there's similarities to the structure, but it's not exactly the same. Um, and, And maybe that's that's why eventually he was able to be convinced to come back on board. I think he was already having some troubles with writing it. He, he struggled with uh, some of those devices that we were just talking about where the memories were going back in time. He, he struggled to kind of figure out a good way to balance all of that. And so maybe that that played a part of it, I don't know.
0: That's really interesting. I mean, I, I think he did it successfully. I would never... I agree. Uh, like they're They're completely different movies. And I would argue that Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind is actually more effective at diving into the psychology of the characters than Memento. Memento is great for, for high stakes mm-hmm. and, and tension. But
1: yeah, I totally agree with with all of that.
0: Are you getting a lot of Scouts snoring? Um, OK, so the hook, definitely Joel and Clem meet for the first time again
1: mm-hmm.
0: in Meteor res. Uh, this is post procedure. Uh, why do you think they started off that way?
1: Um... I think it's a good way to introduce these characters' relationship and to kind of get acquainted acquainted with them before we really get into the details of of what happened and and the high-concept reality of of what's going on.
0: Okay. That's a good point. Do you feel like it served the story well?
1: I do, yeah. I actually think it's a good choice for this movie, ultimately. I do have some issues uh, with it, which I think will discuss pretty soon but um, ultimately I think it was the right decision and, and something that helped the movie
0: okay cool yeah it's a really unconventional opening it's 17 minutes and the, the credits for the movie don't start until 17 minutes into it <laughs> which is really unusual like for most movies they're often and running and like by 17 minutes they're they're almost at the dramatic question they're almost into act two or close to it Um cool so we've staked out the major uh, landmarks of the story we look at the the bones and this this is largely kind of the overall structure of the story and then from there we can start kind of fill in um these other scenes that kind of show the emotional map of the story and this kind of slow gradual downhill movement the story goes into um now one thing that's that we usually want to identify as one of the landmarks is a subplot um subplots tend to be uh you know, a, a scene, a, a plot that's independent of the dramatic question of the primary plot, and uh, becomes kind of like a, a mini problem or conflict they need to resolve uh, that doesn't affect whether they get closer or not to the to the uh, climax or resolving the, the primary dramatic question. Um, now, rather than a subplot, uh, they have uh, a kind of parallel story. Now what's tell me about that parallel story?
1: Yeah, so it's uh, it's an affair happening between Mary played by uh, uh, Kirsten Dunst, sorry, and yeah. Dr. react, played by Tom Wilkinson.
0: Yeah, good. And what does that, that subplot reveal about the story? Um, about the characters? Why, why yeah, yeah. In
1: there? Uh, because it's it's kind of the second impetus, if you will, of events that lead to the end of the movie, and that's The fact that uh, Kirsten Dunst's character, Mary, has actually undergone this procedure before because she was having a previous affair with the doctor. And she realizes that she's had her memories erased and finally decides to end the cycle. And that leads us to the climax of the movie.
0: Cool. Very good. So in a way, even though this is a parallel story, it leads directly into the climax. So technically you could argue argue that it's not a subplot, that it's a a secondary thread that feeds into the climax.
1: Yeah. I would say it's too integral to the plot to be a subplot, but it's close. It's it's as close as you can get to a subplot without it actually being one.
0: Yeah. That's a really good point. That's I, I agree with that assessment. Um, Cool, so we've got this overall structure and this is strictly plot points. So this is strictly character wants this and this is the obstacle they face and this is how they resolve it. And scene by scene, uh, we're plotting things out. Um, A lot of people separate plot from character um, and I don't think that's possible. Plot is always the expression of a character's internal drives, which leads us to character and theme. Uh, Let's dive a little bit into the psychology of the characters. Now uh we always look at um uh at the protagonist's psychology. Um at first let's identify the protagonist. Who is the main character in this movie?
1: Be Joel Barish.
0: Joel Barish. very good. Played by
1: Jimothy Carey.
0: Yes, so uh Jim Carey, a very talented young actor. Um <laughs> look forward to more from him. Uh So Joel Barish, uh, he's kind of a a shy introverted, uh, insecure man, baby. Um, and so what we do is we start with the, we, we start with the external and work our way inward. Um, and the first thing we look at is the conscious desire. Um, and we move from the conscious desire to the unconscious drive, the Achilles heel, the moral imperative. And we use all this to identify the central theme and with the really successful stories, we see the theme just seeping through every pore of the movie. Every single scene is an illustration or an elaboration on the theme. The first thing we look at is the dramatic or sorry. The first thing we look at is the (laughs) conscious desire, Joel's conscious desire. And the conscious desire is what the character knows they want from scene to scene and the conscious desire. We, we average that into the overall story. So from the dramatic question to the climax. So what is Joel's conscious desire?
1: Yeah, so Joel's conscious desire actually, well, a conscious desire lines up pretty well with the dramatic question, I would think, right? Is that usually the case? Yeah, exactly. Um, and in this case, it's, it's Joel wanting to hold on to that memory of Clementine.
0: Good, exactly. So he wants to hold on to Clem's memory. That is, his, he knows that he wants to do that. And, and then every single uh, tactic he uses is an attempt to hold on to those memories. Every single scene is about uh, addressing that conflict. Um, so from the uh, conscious uh, desire that illuminates or gives us an idea of what the unconscious drive is. Now, the unconscious drive is this is where we do the kind of the you know armchair psychology work. When we're, we're, when we're watching movies, we're all psychologists. We're all sitting there in the theaters, identifying with them, trying in some way to identify what it is, what is the machine? What is the weaknesses? What is the ambitions that are driving these characters to make their decisions? And especially in the best stories, it's not an easy answer. In fact, generally speaking, uh, usually, uh, you want to try and structure your stories in a way that the plot is actually fairly simple, but the characters are complex. And this is a great example of that You, you have basically a guy who wants to hold on to his girlfriend's memories. That's that's a straightforward plot but the thing that motivates him and the choices he's making are very complex. And that's what makes this such a great balance of character. Often when you have really complex plots, it, it becomes very difficult for us to, uh, dive into the depth of character. Um, like if you look at inception, for example, as much as I love inception, that's part of my criticism. It's a complex plot. Uh, Nolan tends to do this. He tends to write very complex, uh, sorry, uh, the Nolan brothers tend to write very complex structures, uh, complex plot and complex, uh, obstacles w- trying to dive into the character, but not really l- allowing those obstacles to, uh, to reveal more about the, the layers beneath or the unconscious drives. Um, so in the case of Joel, uh, we know that he has certain motives. We know that he has certain kind of sacred values. Um, and that's what the unconscious drive is. It's, it's the values that inform our decisions. What would you say is the is the unconscious drive that we're that's revealed? Or how would you articulate that? Um, I think the
1: unconscious desire is is Joel's, um like dependency on Clementine. Oh, okay. But that's but I'm, interesting. But I'm thinking you have a different answer.
0: No, actually, I think that's another way of, of explaining it. Like the story is all about a guy who's going through a breakup and he's really hurting from it. He is not dealing well with this, um, which, you know, it, it's normal. Most of us, if we deeply care about somebody and then we lose them, you go through a mourning process mm-hmm. and that mourning process is healthy. But he doesn't deal with it in a healthy way. His, his first response is, you know, well, well fuck her. I'm, I'm going to get back at her. I'm going <laughs> to do exactly to her what she did to me. Which, right you know kind of indicates his maturity level um, <laughs> but th- then the question becomes like so what what is motivating him to want to behave that way he he took he took this very personally and i think at the core of this is uh is his kind of unresolved issues of abandonment with his mother specifically mm-hmm. um now the reason why i say it's a- abandonment from his mother is because that's that's where we get the scenes now there could be some issue of abandonment with his father but we don't have any scenes so that that's those are the scenes that we get to work with so those are the small little pieces of metaphor that we start to use to inform his unconscious drive um so at the core um at the core of this kind of like uh, you you can see how his unresolved feelings for his mother uh, uh, his anxiety about feeling abandoned is what drives him to make this like ridiculous mistake okay or what drives him to do this like ridiculous procedure he's paying someone to do brain damage to cause him to forget a whole life experience <laughs> like two years of his life i think um so when you look at it that way it's like the the unconscious drive um has within it embedded a kind of achilles heel which is a weakness okay what what would you say is his weakness
1: His weakness is, I don't like his his almost childish behavior.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, I I, I wrote it down as uh, he wants to get back at Clem for erasing him. Like, he's not doing the procedure because he wants to be healthy, and this is a good step forward for him to emotionally deal with these problems. Uh, This was him trying to say, you're going to erase me. I'm going to erase you, see how you like it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is, you know, it it shows that that's kind of the growth that he has to go through, which means, um, and that that lesson that he's facing is going to uh, is going to force him to uh, address this thing called the moral imperative. The moral imperative is simply just that moral rule that you're going to come up against. That's the source of all the conflict. Like if you want to survive. In the mafioso world, you have to learn to never narc on the people you're with. You never go to the feds and never, you know. So that's the moral imperative of that world. Now in this, the moral imperative is directly informed by the fact that he wanted to erase her. He basically had this huge emotional underdevelopment, this kind of emotional pocket that he needs to address. Um, So the moral imperative I would say is erasing memories empties us of meaning. And every single scene is all about how Joel uh, is resolving that Achilles heel, his childish behavior by learning this lesson, which is erasing memories empties us of meaning. Um, So once we've identified all this now, the moral imperative is the source of the conflict. It's the moral rule that you that you come up against. But the theme is the takeaway from that moral imperative. Um, whether you actually successfully achieve it, whether you actually do arc or grow or develop, or whether it forces you into a kind of bitterness or, uh, embracing your Achilles heel. Uh, so in the case of, um, of eternal sunshine on the spotless mind, what is the theme that, what is the takeaway from this story? What do you think Joel learns through this whole experience?
1: nothing because his memories were erased
0: <laughs> see okay good that that actually it speaks directly to the theme <laughs> he completely resets the last two years of his life because all of that learning all of that growth that he experienced by being with clementine is completely taken away which to me does emphasize the value of love i think on the surface the central theme of eternal sunshine of the spotless mind is that through love we learn to become the people we want to be like if we look at it clementine is everything joel wishes he could be but doesn't have the doesn't have the guts to do it Or doesn't have the security or the or the ambition that she does and by seeing her he's like this is this is amazing i want to i want to try and engage this i want like i want to be more like her and so when he's with her he's more brave he's more silly he's more everything that he wants to be and then by wiping her out uh, he loses all of that.
1: Mm-hmm. So I,
0: I would say the takeaway is kind of on the surface level, this, the, the, the theme is you know, through love we become the people we want to be, that we're capable of becoming. Um, but I think it actually goes a little bit deeper than that. Right? Um, because this is Charlie Kaufman, who I think is an absolute genius, he, <laughs> he writes on a, on a much more sophisticated level. Um, I think he is using this kind of romantic uh, meta story or th- this romantic narrative to build uh, uh, an argument about the nature of love itself from a very kind of uh, critical point of view. And I think to understand that, uh, we need to look at Mary Svevo. So uh, so on the surface, we have this character arc, this kind of, uh, oh, actually, it's almost like the the opposite of a character arc we learn that Joel learned a lot from Clementine in their first relationship. And now he's just has to reset. But what he did learn is that he wants to hold, he's going to want to hold on to these memories, that there's something inside him that's saying this experience with Clementine is something you need to go through. Maybe it means that they're going to be together forever, or maybe it means that she is the lesson I need to learn in life. And by erasing that lesson, even though it hurts, um, it's not, Uh, it's something that he still feels like there's something inside him is telling him he still needs to go through that so from the theme we start to get to the question of what is this movie really about what is charlie kaufman and michelle gondry saying about the nature of love and i think the key to that is this character mary svevo um played by kirsten dunst Uh, there's this moment where uh mark ruffalo specifically says i really like you mary svevo And it was that moment watching it, like, you know, for the fourth or fifth time that I was like, Svevo, that's such a unique, specific name. (laughs) Um, So, you know, that that kind of that's one of those little clues that those little strands that you you pick on, you start picking at it and you're like, wait, there's actually something here. There's uh, there's something really fascinating. But before we go into Svevo, do you know what the word lacuna actually means? I do not No. Yeah, I didn't either. I, I, you know, I thought it was just a clever, interesting poetic name. Uh, It actually is Latin once again, um, (laughs) and it means gap, Um, like uh, specifically referred to like lakes or ponds, like lagoon, uh, Mm -hmm. a kind of small lake is um, uh, English derivation of lacuna. So it means like a small gap. But lacuna now is specifically uh, means a missing portion in a book or a manuscript. So this the you know the company is named after you know what it does which is it eliminates whole chapters from your book of life um, <laughs> which I thought you know it's Charlie Kaufman it's it's brilliant but what i think this story Eternal sunshine is really talking about is using addiction to cope with those emotional gaps is that we all we all have gaps and and we're trying to keep those gaps in place in order to deal with them or it's specifically uh, talking about addiction and how addiction we use addiction to cope with the gaps in our personal lives. Um, But more specifically, alcoholism, it's all about like, I believe the metaphor for the procedure is a metaphor for alcoholism itself, the way we use or the way we can abuse and use alcohol to dull the senses soften the feeling but also create a kind of amnesia for herself now there's several subtle ways that that Kaufman uh, wove this into the story at the very beginning uh, we have that scene where um, uh, Joel says uh, you know is this like uh, is, is does this cause any brain damage and he says it's it technically it is brain damage you know on par with a heavy night of drinking <laughs> or night of heavy drinking um, And I think that that's the first kind of strand connecting the two. And then later, uh, when Mark uh, Ruffalo's character is saying, like, you know, we got to get this procedure started, he makes this symbol like he holds it like he's going to take a drink. And then um, Elijah Wood reaches down into the boxes that has all the gear and the equipment. And he pulls out a beer, a falling rock beer. And then later, you know, Elijah Wood is talking to him and he's like, hey, you know, uh, he's just trying to talk about his new girlfriend. And Mark Ruffalo says we got to focus here and we see the specific image it's framed in such a way he says we have to focus we got to get the procedure started And he points at the beer at the alcohol. And, I, and then on top of that when the procedure is completely done they take the helmet off and literally out from underneath the helmet as if it was part of the procedure Mark Ruffalo pulls up a beer now I think it works as a gag, but it also works on that extra layer that says that this, this procedure is really about alcoholism. Um, And what confirmed that for me is looking into this Mary Svevo or the, the, the uh, surname for Svevo. So I found this one uh, writer called Italo Svevo, who's an Italian writer. Um, He was considered a pioneer of the psychological novel in Italy and is best known for his classic modernist novel, novel, La Consciencia. Let me see if I can say this right, La Consciencia de Giano. Oh, no, fuck it. La Consciencia <laughs> de Geno, 1923, a work that had a profound effect in the movement. So it's, uh, he was the pioneer of the psychological novel. Um, and he says the work showing the author's interest, uh, the work showed the author's interest in theories of Sigmund Freud is written in the form of memories of Zeno's Cosini, who writes them at the insistence of his psycho- psychoanalyst. So the whole story is novel is a kind of, um, backtracking of his memories but a specific uh, system of memories he sought uh psychoanalysis uh, sorry he sought psychoanalysis uh in order to discover why he was uh, addicted to nicotine and that's at the core that was his objective uh, as he reveals in his memories each time he had given up smoking with the iron resolve that this would be the ultimo cigarette the last cigarette he experienced the exhilarating feeling that he was now beginning life over without the burden of his old habits and mistakes oh that feeling was so strong that he found smoking irresistible if only so that he could stop smoking again in order to experience the thrill once more <laughs> so at the core of this Italos Bebo's novel is all about the the immense elation of creating a kind of amnesia, forgetting what it was like to smoke cigarettes for the first time, so he could experience it for the first time. And that's ultimately what Joel and Clementine are doing. They're erasing each other from their memory, so that they can fall in love for the first time again, because the falling in love part was their favorite part. There's this one poet that I loved, Uh, I saw a lecture at CalArts, I can't remember the name of the poet, but he said that Uh, basically like this is, uh, if you look at love as a timeline, as, as like your body is a timeline of love, um, like, you you know, if you, if you kind of stretch your arms out and, uh, on your right hand is this is where you see each other for the first time. It kind of grabs you. And then here's like the first kiss or the first time you sleep together. This is the first time you tell each other, you love each other. This is the first time you say, you know what, let's be together. Let's make this work. Then you go into the body of the relationship. And then from there, this is when you realize it's not going to work out. This bicep is the last kind of passionate realization of things aren't work uh, uh, that you have to let go soon. This is kind of the first major like uh, insight that it's going to end, and this is the bitter, ugly let go. You know, this is the breakup. And he said, most poetry happens from here to here. And like all the really great meaty emotional stories are all about the arms, the body of the story. There's not a lot of poetry or stories about what's going on in the body of the relationship. And that's, what's so great about this is these are stored. The, uh, this is a story. I think ultimately about people who love this part of the relationship, the, the kind of grabbing the beginning of the relationship. And this just became this ugly, bitter thing. So they want to just start over and experience this first initial growth. Um, and at the core of that, that reveals this really great fascinating you know, we go back to Sigmund Freud specifically, and I think Charlie Kaufman was citing Svevo for this. Um, you can see that the core of this is, this is largely uh, feelings of issues of abandonment with his mother. He feels like, you know, the, the few times we see his mother, she's using alcohol as a way of kind of, you know, entertaining herself, making light of it, but it also is associated with how he copes with gaps. He wanted his mother's attention. He feels this yearning for it, which we all experience that, that doesn't mean that his mother was a bad mother. It only means that Joel was experiencing it as if it was some form of abandonment. Um, and so, the, you know, and then we, we learned that alcoholism was part of the reason why there was that distance between them. Um, you know, we, we see that scene, like, how about a cocktail? I know it's only, it's not five, but blah, blah, blah. So um, at the core of that, this unconscious drive, We see um, that Joel and Clem are really, this isn't a story about uh, romanticism so much and even about healthy love. It's largely about two people who are using love as a kind of addiction. And that, that, that might be what really drove their desire to have this procedure. It wasn't so much that they just want to forget about everything. It was actually kind of this kind of fucked up way for them to romantically restart their addiction and say, I want to mm-hmm. experience Clementine for the first time. I want to experience Joel for the first time, because that was the best part of our relationship, which suggests both of them have the huge pockets of development that they experienced in their, in their, in their relationship. Cause real relationships are, it, it's great falling in love but the really great, meaty, beautiful stuff is what comes when you have this kind of really uh, in-depth connection with somebody. Um, So yeah, so I don't think that, uh, this is Charlie Kaufman talking about love. I don't think it's a romantic story. I think it's a story about Joel and Clementine using their love like alcohol to fill their emotional gaps rather than having an actual sophisticated mature love, a meaningful love that could last. Um, so, it, so looking at that, you know, you've got the, the character arc, which is kind of like what the character is learning, but what is the question that we can learn from that character? And I would say that love is actually, I would say that the, the the theme, the takeaway from this story is actually that love is a vice we use to escape our misery. And when you use love in that way, you're ultimately going to be cheating yourself up the really meaningful experiences. Or am I wrong? D- did I go down the rabbit hole? What are your thoughts on this?
1: Um no no no, I, I I definitely see all the evidence and can agree with what you're uh presenting here. And I've always kind of thought that this movie is uh very much about your last little uh central theme line that you put down that love is a vice we use to escape our misery cuz I I think that ultimately their relationship between Joel and Clementine is not a healthy relationship, and not something yeah. that is sustainable.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Okay, so that kind of wraps up uh, like our, our attempt at kind of trying to analyze uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Now let's let's shift from analysis to criticism. With your oh! so I, I had a couple plot holes or a couple of thoughts that I wanted to kind of work through them with you and see if you felt like they were a plot hole or if they were weak stories or just me being nitpicky. Okay. Um, so the first one I think was really interesting is, uh, is Clem a manic pixie dream girl. Now what I mean by that is, uh, there's this trope that's used in a lot of, it seemed like it kind of cropped up in the nineties and we used a lot in the early two thousands. Um, where the the pixie dream girl is basically this this girl who's super cute super attractive uh she's instantly like she's extroverted she's fun she's playful she's everything usually the the heterosexual male character is and he's usually kind of a an insecure quiet introvert uh who finds like she fulfills all of his All of his insecurities she resolves all these she takes the initiative he doesn't have to risk anything she takes all the risk um and ultimately she you know it's kind of a fantasy of like an insecure man who doesn't want to take the initiative which we see that with with joel quite a bit um like one of the best versions i saw this was uh garden state and by best i mean like Natalie Portman I think was playing that um, manic pixie dream girl where she's just like isn't my backpack great and isn't this just I'm just so crazy and fun and charismatic when it's really just this just this fantasy that this adorable girl will just throw herself at this really insecure introverted guy (laughs) um but do you think that's true with Clementine and Joel
1: um I think it's mostly true but like I literally just said uh I feel like this uh, movie is almost a cautionary tale about how a relationship like that doesn't really work. And so it's not quite uh, fulfilling that trope 100%, but I, I do think that she's close to that.
0: Yeah. What, so, what do you
1: think? Uh, I,
0: I would argue that this is Kaufman commenting on that trope.
1: That makes sense, yeah.
0: And And the main reason why is, first of all, he's pointing out like most for example garden state and everything they're and manic pixie dream girls they're always just talking about how awesome they are and how wonderful they are they're they're kind of it's this mad, like adulation the, the truth of it is is not only is clementine uh, yes she's she's manic she's all over the place she's impulsive uh she's extroverted she likes a lot of attention she walks into a room and just wants everybody to be looking at her and talking to her and and be the subject of everybody and that's how she finds important um so immediately there's kind of this dimension where you're seeing kind of the ugly side of it but on top of that uh i the real key to that that to see that this isn't just you know taking the Man of pixie dream girl and romanticizing it is i think Kaufman is commenting on it because of patrick like the way elijah wood plays patrick i think he is a caricature of the Joel character Mm -hmm. is, is he is the caricature of the counterpoint to the many pixie dream girl where, you know, he, he's a creep, he's obsessive. He's (laughs) stealing her underwear. He uses this really nefarious means to stalk her and to learn all this private information and then to tap into her psychological, um, mechanisms that he learned by using these procedures and then uh, exploited that in such a way that she was you know he knew how to push all of her buttons but not in any natural way and so i think that's kaufman kind of saying like he's the counterpoint to the manic pixie dream girl basically this deeply insecure underdeveloped baby boy who doesn't have any kind of um actual emotional development uh and and that's that's what that's the kind of character that seeks out the manic pixie dream girl because then it seems like she's the answer to all of his problems. Um, so yeah, I would agree with you. I don't. Well, I think Clementine is a commentary on the manic pixie dream girl, um, but I don't think it's an illustration of the trope. I think it's a deconstruction of the trope, and then it, it, it elevates it to the next level. Same with the, the fact that Joel is uh, uh, an elaboration on that same uh, criticism. Um, okay, so the next one how does Clem have a new phone number if they erased her memory?
1: Um, it was just part of the procedure that they, 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 uh, they got it all sorted out for.
0: So do you know your phone number? Yeah. Do you have it memorized? Mm-hmm. Do you have anyone else's phone number memorized?
1: A few. Yeah.
0: Okay, cool. So you had to go through a process of memorizing those numbers. Part of that is usually repetition and you prioritized it. So if she's changed her number, that means she's had to memorize a new number. Mm-hmm. She knows that she has a new number, which means that number, that previous number was associated with Joel. So my argument, my question is, that they don't address is, he says he tries to call her, her number's been changed so he goes to her work and she's there and she doesn't even recognize him. How is it possible that they have any kind of... How can she remember a new number if they've erased her memory?
1: Maybe they implanted the memory.
0: I mean, that's a whole different procedure. Or is it just, we don't want to see that scene because it's not that important. Uh, I think it's almost definitely that. (laughs) Okay. So it's not a plot hole, it's just a, a... There's an invention because they did this, blah, blah,
1: blah. I mean, it's sort of a plot hole. Yeah.
0: Okay. Cool. Okay. So you would say it's a little bit of a plot hole, but not like a major issue.
1: Right. Yeah. It's a plot like hole. You don't, you don't want to have a scene where it's like,
0: and this is how you get a new number. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Cause uh, <laughs> there's probably a few details that you could really nitpick like that. If you analyze what a person would really have to go through in order for their memories to be erased and to continue living a normal life. Like, yeah. that didn't happen.
0: Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, why didn't Joel get a card from Lacuna informing him of the erasure?
1: Yeah, this is something I thought about, too, when, when I was watching the movie this time. And I, I have no idea. I can't figure it out, except for the fact that it makes for a really dramatic scene.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. So it's almost like <laughs> a conflict for the sake of conflict. Mm-hmm. Because if you're if you're going to be sending out cards saying please do not mention Joel Barish to Clementine, he,
1: he's you. the number one that should be getting that card.
0: Absolutely. Like, and then the fact that like you know, there's a scene where he says, "I'm sorry, you shouldn't have seen this. I apologize." It's like <laughs> he's the one that should see it. Otherwise, yeah. he's going to keep showing up, and then it's it's going to be traumatizing for her because she's completely you know it's it's this is a completely foreseeable conflict. It's a foreseeable problem. So would you say that's a plot hole? Uh, not
1: a plot hole, but a plot warp kind of
0: a plot warp. Okay, I like that. A plot warp. Uh, it's a, it's a plot gap. It's a lacuna.
1: It's is movie magic. It's movie magic.
0: Yeah. They solved it with movie magic. They, they fixed it in post. <laughs> um, let's see. I'm going to skip the insidious emphatic. It's not that interesting. Um, Okay, here's a big one. And I'm genuinely conflicted about this. Mm -hmm. How did Mary get the files delivered in one day?
1: I, I do have an answer for that.
0: Okay, real quick. I just want to be specific for the audience. So Joel wakes up from Procedure. The next that day he goes to uh, montauk he meets clementine they sleep together and then uh what is it the next day they go to the lake and then they wake up the next morning or he drives her home the next morning and it's waiting for them like the the file is waiting for him at home and it's waiting for her for clementine at her place so they hear the cassettes of their memory which means that mary sfevo stole all the files and then delivered them to all the patients, and they arrived in one day. How is that possible? In 2004.
1: Okay. So, Spider-Man 2 with Tobey (laughs) Maguire and Kirsten Dunst was also released in 2004. Maybe in that memory erasure, she didn't realize at the time that she was dating Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. And then through the process of her realizing that her memory was erased, she figured it all out and got Peter Parker to do it for her.
0: Oh my God, you're blowing my mind. So Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is an expanded universe of the Spider-Man verse, of the Spider-Verse. Yes. Holy shit. So Lacuna, (laughs) that means Dr. Meerswak is actually a Spider-Man villain.
1: Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to see him in the next Spider-Man. Let's see if he's in what, what are they calling it? I don't know.
0: The far, far from home? No,
1: that was the last one.
0: That was the last one. Interesting. Okay, I gotta think about that one. That's interesting. Uh, no, I don't. I don't buy that for a second. I don't think that was a Marvel universe thing at all. Well, then
1: let's just give it up for the United States Postal Service.
0: <laughs> actually just just before we started this podcast i was re-watching the movie real quick and i saw this one shot that i absolutely love now in the context of this question there's a scene where joel is go- at the very beginning he's walking to lacuna and he's going to drop off every single artifact that he has of clementine and as he's crossing the the street a delivery van a U- ups van almost hits him he slams on the brakes and he says Wake up, buddy. And then Joel continues across. He's like, "Sorry, sorry,", sorry. And, he, and he continues across <laughs> the street, which is great foreshadowing because what that's what that's saying is, literally Mary Svevo's letter, is going to be the thing that's the wake up call. Yeah, it's kind of a nice little like poetic like that's Kaufman winking at the audience, saying, "Hey, guess what? There's there's a lot more layers." That's what I mean by like great writing, is like even the little throwaway lines have lots of loaded meaning. Um, and that's, that's a really good example. One. I think that's
1: so fucking cool. Uh, ultimately though, I, I do think it's just a, like a convenience plot point. They don't want to have the characters wait a couple of days to figure that out. It just makes yeah. sense for it to go smoothly.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. And, and you could argue like those were, that was the, that was the relationship. I was going to say, you could argue that that was the relationship that, uh, i just going a text that showed up on there. Um, you could argue that that was the relationship that, you know, she was in Joel's apartment when all the shit hit the fan. So maybe she wanted to specifically uh, fast track it to Joel and then to Clementine because she mm-hmm. saw all the fucked up shit that's happening. You could make that argument. Ultimately, it doesn't matter because the, the you know, the, the plot needed to happen when it needed to happen. And, you know, it's it's something I didn't notice until watching it for like the, you know, 10th time. Yeah, um, and then so for for further criticism, this isn't so much plot holes. Uh, my my biggest criticism, if if it is a, I, I love this movie. I'm one of the. I I was in art school. I was in film school when I saw this movie, so I loved it so much. It totally spoke to me. I love the aesthetic. I love Michelle Gondry's cinematic style. I love Charlie Kaufman's writing. I love the performances. The whole cast I thought was fantastic. Um, but but my my criticism is largely uh so we have that scene in the uh borders bookstore where she works or barnes and noble one of the two it's a bookstore where she works and we see all the spines disappearing and she says i'm not a concept which again speaks to that manic pixie dream girl thing she says i'm not a concept you know and then there's that like she just disappears and he says goodbye to his last one of his last memories of her and then the next scene is him going to uh, the to Montauk where they first met for the first time. His first memory of her. And how they run into the house and he left her because he was all shy and embarrassed. And she says, what if you stay? And we see the same beat over and over and over again, which is, man, I'm really bummed out I'm losing you. I'm really bummed out I'm losing you. And both of those beats basically have the same kind of emotional um, value to them. They have the same kind of emotional impact which is it's really sad when she disappears mm-hmm. so i i kind of wish they found a way to take that like i love the speech i'm not a concept it's great i wish they found a way to like it was a great opportunity to actually dive further into joel's childhood because they only they only you know went to him under his mother's table in the kitchen and then him killing the bird with his friends and then him and Clementine running around as, you know, the cowgirl. But we didn't get a, a lot, uh, a lot more than that, or we didn't yeah. get much more than that. I, I, I would have liked
1: to see more from that, that time period in his life, too, especially because they brought so much importance to going deeper into his memories. And then it doesn't really feel like we get a lot of time
0: there. Yeah, just kind of skim the surface and then they jump right back to memories of Clementine. So that would have been, basically, it was just a, a small missed opportunity, and maybe in early drafts it had that, but um, it was a missed opportunity to really learn more about the psychological development. Like, why does Joel feel this abandonment? Was there some events um, that, that we missed out on? It, but in the end, you know, it's a minor criticism because it's such a fantastic story. It's so well put together.
1: Something that will also kind of go back into the, to the plot holes. It's not exactly criticism, but something that may not have worked well for me. Um, we talked about this film starting in media res. And for me, that mm, kind of yeah. took a lot of the stakes out. Because the whole time we're going through this journey with Joel, through his memories, trying to hold on to a memory of Clementine, trying to have a way to keep a connection with her but we already know that they've met up again the whole time so even though i still feel like it takes us on an emotional journey and and does a really good job from scene to scene Mm -hmm. something about starting a media res does take out some of those stakes and answer some of those questions that we should be asking during
0: the the whole movie playing out that's a really good point See, I'm trying to remember what I felt like the first time I watched it. Mm-hmm. Cause I like I feel like the first time you watch the movie it's so disorienting that you're not really sure that's in Media Res until the end of the movie. And then at the end of the movie they reveal, Oh, by the way, this wasn't the first time they actually met. The first time they met was years ago. And so that scene you saw at the beginning, it was actually the present.
1: Yeah, I, I do agree that it is a little bit disorienting, but there are definitely key details mm-hmm. that f- tell you not too much further after we go back into to present time. Uh, that that was media res. Like we get the this little scene with Elijah Wood. Um, yeah. We get them talking about certain events, like like they would have happened when they first met or earlier in the relationship. That doesn't quite make sense with the first scene in media res. So, so I do think that there is enough information there that, you know, maybe if you're watching this at first, you might not pick it up immediately, but it's there. And and I think it is visible.
0: Yeah. That's, that's a fair point. That's a really good point. I didn't think about that. It's like, um, have you ever read life of Pi or seen the movie? I have not. no, Okay, so the whole premise is a journalist goes to interview this guy about his uh, life adventure. And uh, he tells the story of how he survived a shipwreck with him and a tiger stuck on a raft. And it's the whole adventure of him going across the sea and everything. And the problem is, is that, you know, it's, it's a, it's an adventure story. And the, the key to an adventure story, the question is always, are they going to survive? And because the journalist is interviewing him, you know, forty years mm-hmm. later, you're like, well, he definitely survives. So all of the stakes were completely undercut. You never wonder if he's actually going to survive, if the tiger's going to maul him or kill him, or if, you know, they're going to drown or die at sea or eat each other. So that that's that story would have benefited by just getting rid of the journalist story and just tell the story straightforward as a survival story. And in this case, I could see that it's it's a good argument that starting in media res undercuts the stakes, because if you started off with Joel, like right where the credits begin, start the movie there. You have this depressed person uh, who's going to start a procedure like I almost wonder if I could see it that way. I'd love to have Charlie Kaufman on. To, I'd love to sit him down and ask him <laughs> questions about that. That's a really good point. It's a good. It's a good criticism. I hadn't really thought about
1: that. I, I don't think it's bad that the movie started Meteor Res. It definitely benefits from it in certain ways, um, but it, it's kind of a trade off. And I think that's something that you have to consider a lot in writing. Is is sometimes there is a trade off with of certain decisions
0: that that you make. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point i mean it's a clearly a trade-off they went for and they went for it you know pretty boldly like Mm -hmm. doing it out of order in a movie that's already feels like it's out of order so they're taking a lot of risk i think it's a smart movie yeah
1: i think it works just for me personally it's it's something that that didn't quite mesh with with my experience watching it
0: okay cool fair criticism all right. Well, that wraps up our uh, vivisection or our deconstruction for, um, for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Um, still one of my favorite movies. I love this movie so much. I'm <laughs> going to keep watching it and keep studying it. And I would love to, Charlie Kaufman, if you see this, I'd love to sit down with you and ask you a million questions sometime. <laughs> <laughs> you want a vivisection. All right, for next week's movie, we're going to be doing Seven from David Fincher. You can submit your writing questions to the askhole at storykinetics.com. Uh, be sure and subscribe so you get updates on uh, every episode we're releasing. Um, also, join us on the Art of Story Facebook group where you can join the discussion. And be sure and subscribe and click the bell on YouTube. Uh, we'd love to have you join us. Well, good luck, everybody. We'll see you next week. Sorry, I'm bad with goodbyes. Oh. Hello, everybody. C